Father, we are again thankful and we're mindful that you've asked us to come boldly, so we do. And uh, after Thanksgivings, uh, we'll offer up our requests. But Father, first of all, I'd like to thank you for all things and for your good care over us and for your sovereign purpose that's being worked out even in these dark days here in our land and other countries where if we lived there, we'd think it was truly dark indeed. Uh, here, it doesn't compare, but uh, but more and more uh, evil is becoming visible, at least here. Uh, we know that evil uh, is the way of the enemy and the way of fallen mankind. So, Father, we just uh, pray for our nation after thanking you for it and thanking you for our leaders and how you've worked in the past, how you've worked in our lives, Father, to remove our blindness to the word of truth and to deliver us from bondage and uh, to give us uh, such great blessing and to instruct us concerning your purpose for this time of grace, this this dispensation of grace, a purpose that involves working in our hearts. You dwell in our hearts, and we are the temple, and we do rejoice in that. Thank you for reminding us of these things as we go through our day. I pray for our nation and our leaders, Father. I pray that you give uh, guidance, direction, wisdom, great wisdom to uh, sail the ship of state, as it were, through very troubled waters. Father, I, I pray that you would uh, engage the hearts and minds of our people in ways that have not been common for so long and that, that they would understand, that they would understand our people, that they would understand uh, what you are doing. And uh, that this life is to be spent looking forward to eternity. Father, I pray that our people would be drawn to you, that you'd also guide and lead our, in our government, our president, and those that serve with them there in this regard, that they might have a godly uh, point of view, that they might lead and, and guide the nation or, or institutions in the government or even our families, that they would guide and lead in a way that's honorable, Father, and would glorify you. I pray, Father, that they'd open the word and study it and rightly divide it. And, Father, I thank you for our opportunity this morning. Father, as we look into your word now, I pray that it would be a great blessing to us. And would ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. We continue today with really... Uh, a precious, precious portion indeed of Paul's letter to the Philippians. We get today to the final set of exhortations in this letter in chapter 4. And uh, the emphasis uh, throughout the letter has been, of course, as you well know, if, you know, if you've been with us, uh, is on having the mind of Christ and uh, seeing that mind represented imperfectly, of course, but nevertheless uh, represented in the Apostle Paul himself. And uh, as Apostle of the Gentiles and the one through whom the word of grace has been abundantly given, Paul says, 
to the believers there in Philippi, and of course by implication to us as well, he says, follow me. And uh, and so we, as we saw last time in that very, very uh, uh, amazing exhortation there in chapter 3, the twofold uh, one there, uh, <clears throat> first of all, focusing uh, on how important it is to follow him and his example, and secondly, uh, what the consequence is of not following him. So, uh, Lisa, I'd like you to read those, the negative verses, uh, the ones that are, well, they're not all negative. I mean, there's a very positive uh, introduction there about following Paul, but it becomes rather negative in the next couple of verses, and and we're going to see such a great contrast as we proceed today with that. So, Lisa, would you please... uh, Read Philippians chapter 3, verses 17, 18, and 19. Yes. Brethren, be followers together of me, and mark them which walk so, as ye have us for an ensample. For many walk, of whom I have told you often, and now tell you even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame, who mind earthly things. Thank you, Lisa. Well, we we really could keep reading the next two verses, but let's leave it at that for now. I'll read them in just a moment. But what we see here in, in this exhortation, as it begins here, is one of the strongest... Uh, statements of, of all the different things mentioned there that you find anywhere uh, in the scriptures written to the church, the body of Christ, right? The strongest exhortations, uh, both positively and negatively. So positively, be followers together of me. What this means is that uh, you should mimic me. And the word used in the Greek is the word from which we get our word mimic. The M-I-M there is the root word. It means to copy very carefully. Okay? So Paul says, follow me, but what he what he's really saying is that you need to study very carefully and then mimic me. Uh, there's all this talk about becoming more like Jesus all the time, and, and uh, those that talk that way are not uh, reading the scriptures set before us here today. They're not looking at them because if they did, they they begin to see their whole perspective change because what God is doing today is very different than what he has done in the past or that he will do in the future. What he's doing today is consistent with his dispensational plan. Uh, dispensations are all about the work of God, the specific and differing works of God through the different times and periods uh, in which God has worked uh, in different ways, right? Yes, there are always things similar between them, but the main thing that's similar is that God is working. Exactly how <laughs> is uh, something uh, that we need to study and, and understand or we'll be greatly confused. So Paul says here, follow me. And in 1 Corinthians 11, 1, he says, follow me or mimic me as I mimic Christ. So Paul is the... Uh, the interpreter, as it were, because it is the heavenly Christ and what is is being worked out by God today that's the issue. 
you want to know about that, if you want to learn of that, if you want to walk uh, in the light of that, you need to uh, study Paul's letters very, very carefully. He says, also, mark those which walk as you have us for an example. This word ensample could be translated example, I guess, but um, the, the Greek word is the word we get our word type from. Type. T-Y-P-E. Everybody talks about types in the Old Testament. The types <laughs> in the Bible are, are abundantly evident in the Old Testament, right? In the Jewish sacrificial, the Mosaic sacrificial system, right? There are many types that point forward to the completed work of Christ ultimately, right? But at that time, uh, the work of Christ wasn't completed at all, right? And uh, they were to uh, submit to the sacrificial system, offering up over and over again the shed blood of animals and other uh, offerings, too, uh, that were required to be repeated over and over again because there was no payment for sin that had been made. Okay? Christ had not yet gone to the cross. The cross was not a reality. It was something being pointed forward to. That's what those types are all about. Paul writes here about a type which is real today, and that's uh, this particular type is concerning his own life and how it is a type for us and our living. Okay, okay. so the crux of the matter is in um, understanding the, the realm of the mind. Do we understand what God is doing? Uh, and are we minding or, or do we have the mind set? Are we thinking the way he said it originally in chapter 2, the way Christ thought when he left heaven's glory, right? With love for sinners as the motivation and unwilling to uh, avoid giving up all that would prevent that heavenly purpose from being accomplished, right? So he gave it all, all up to, to, to come into this world and then ultimately to die on uh, Calvary's cross. So that mindset, and Paul emulates that for us, uh, is what's set before us in this letter. It's the largest subject in the letter, clearly. Okay? Uh, now what he says in verses 18 and 19, and we want to quickly move ahead now, but what he says there, if you were with us last time, you already know this well, but he says there is... Um, perdition waiting ahead for those that are not following Paul. That's what he says here. He says, many walk of whom I've told you often and now tell you even weeping that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly and whose glory is in their shame, who mind earthly things. Well, many are saved who are not following Christ. <laughs> okay. So this is not about hellfire. When you read this word destruction, verse 19, even though it's also translated by the word perdition in the letter to the Hebrews, right? Uh, it, it is not hellfire that's in mind. It is rather the unraveling of one's life. Okay, If you're a believer and you do not follow Paul, your life will be unraveled. One step at a time. That's what he is saying here. 
Okay, and you will have a carnal view of things and you will live in a worldly realm and you will live, he says here, to your shame. Okay, why? Because at the judgment seat of Christ, all those works will be burned, right? So we as believers have set before us a heavenly goal and a path to walk, which is the path Paul was walking and uh, he is our example. Okay. So those minding earthly things, and they may be building megachurches, but whatever they're doing, the ones minding earthly things should expect perdition, destruction. That's the point Paul's making here. It's a very serious issue for the believer to consider. Okay? Um, so what Paul is writing about is, are two radically distinct and different courses of living. Okay? One leads to destruction. That word perdition, in the Greek, it means unraveling. It means things just uh, just can't can't stick together. They're eventually going to fall apart. It's predictable, right? So one path leads to destruction and unraveling, uh, even as the believer seeks uh, in carnal ways and worldly ways to honor God, right? And uh, the other leads to what he calls perfection. <laughs> perfection. In other words, reaching the goal that God has uh, appointed for us. God has appointed an endpoint for us in this life, and we're to be running as a race is run, with our mind set on the goal. And that's the illustration he gives here for, for that. Okay, uh, The one... Focus is temporal, the other's eternal. The ones by uh, uh, faith or faith plus works, even the others by faith of Christ alone, right? The two are very, very different. The endpoints are different, right? Though heaven will be the benefit and blessing for every believer, many will get there without uh, rewards. Paul writes about that in 1 Corinthians 3. We looked at that before. Okay, so those with a heavenly hope should expect the special blessing, right? It's waiting for them. Philippians 3, verses 20 and 21 makes that so clear. Our conversation or citizenship is in heaven from whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall change our vile body that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body, according to the working whereby he is able even to subdue all things unto himself. So what he's saying is that we're citizens of a heavenly realm. We should live like it. We're also aliens and strangers here on this earth and need to live like that too, right? And uh, not... Uh, with the worldly uh, ventures dominating our lives. Now, we still have our feet in the world, though, uh, though we have our head in the heavens, uh, one would hope. And so there are many uh, things here that need to be taken care of. I did address that in passing and mentioned whole cloth. Uh, our lives are, are supposed to be whole cloth, not compartmentalized. And we think we said enough about that before. Uh, so the believer who is running this race will carry out his human responsibilities well, even though uh, he's living 
for Christ in every every way. And in in all of our motivations, uh, we must be uh, pure, to say the least, right? Okay, um, not today. <clears throat> uh, let me clear my voice again here. <clears throat> Sorry about that. Today we're looking at Paul's final exhortation in this letter. He's just said, follow me. That's his exhortation in chapter 3. And he says it again. He says it again in chapter 4. Okay. So Paul's final exhortation is follow me, meaning imitate me. And we're looking at the first four, or sorry, the first nine verses in Philippians chapter 4. There's six parts to this final exhortation. First of all, its subject is the apostles, dear ones. That's to whom he's writing its subject. Secondly, its application, even to our ordinary lives, as I mentioned just a moment ago, even to our ordinary lives. Thirdly, its focus, the exhortation, its focus, rejoicing and again rejoicing. Then it's challenge. The Lord is near and be gentle, be gentle. Then the exhortations promise the peace of God is abundant. <laughs> His peace is so abundant, if only we would take note of that, right? And finally, the exhortations calling. It is simply follow or imitate me. Okay, so I hope you're all uh, ready for this. This is such a wonderful passage indeed. And some of it you already have clearly in mind, but let's let's get it in the right context or we'll be missing out so much that's really written here so clearly. All right? And even this time through in my studies, I've, I've learned so much and hope you are too. Okay. Uh, first of all, then, uh, the subject of the exhortation. The subject, who is it written to? To the apostles' dear ones. Okay, Philippians 4.1. Roy, would you please read Philippians 4.1 for us? Therefore, my brethren, dearly beloved, and longer for my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord. Thank you, Roy. Okay. <laughs> this is amazing because there's a six-fold repetition here of Paul's relationship to the saints. Six-fold. He uses all these different uh, words to, to um, add concreteness to it and power to his exhortation, right? Notice how he exalts the, the the brethren, right, in the way he opens this exhortation. So he says, therefore, my brethren. Okay, that's the first way he describes the relationship. Secondly, dearly beloved. Thirdly, longed for. Fourthly, my joy. Fifthly, my crown. And sixthly, again, he repeats how he uh, mentioned this relationship earlier there in the sentence, right? My dearly beloved. 
Okay. So six times he repeats it. It's pretty amazing. Have you ever written a letter like this? Never, right? Wouldn't you feel strange doing it? Why? Because you, you'd feel like, well, the more I say this, maybe the less it means, right? <laughs> well, Paul's view is a little different. The more he says it, the more it means. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> so it's a sixfold repetitive uh, reference to how he sees them, right? His view of them. This is really important. Uh, if you're writing uh, a letter and in that letter you're going to exhort the recipient concerning failures of one kind or another or possible future issues that you anticipate they will be dealing with, right? <laughs> and giving them the only way they can avoid those issues, right? Are you going to start out by saying you're just so great and our relationship is so perfect. Well, that's basically what he's saying. <laughs> and that's because he knows that they are the ones in whom the Lord is working. So he has much reason to be confident, right? And then the way he ends this initial uh, phase of the exhortation, he says, Stand fast in the Lord, my dearly beloved. Stand fast in the Lord. That's kind of the ultimate in simplicity, right? Um, and uh, Paul will say much more, but but that's what he says just to uh, summarize it all, right? We would just stand fast in the Lord. In other words, in, in our connection with him, the reality of that connection, and what it means to be in Christ Jesus. That changes everything. It ch should, should change everything in our uh our uh, thinking indeed, right? So that's how he starts out. Um, then the application of this exhortation is even to our ordinary lives. Look at what he says next. And I'd like uh, Patty to read verses 2 and 3 there. I beseech you, Odious, and beseech Syntyche, that they be of the same mind in the Lord. And I entreat thee also, true yoke fellow, Help those women which labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and with other my fellow laborers, whose names are in the book of life. Okay, thank you. So there are at least four people and probably a lot more mentioned here, some by name. Okay, three names. These names go down in the book <laughs> of history, right? <clears throat> uh, two a little negatively. I used to think very negatively. I've changed my mind about that. I think it's simply in passing that he mentions them. There's some kind of a conflict that's become known to the apostle, right? They have some kind of a difference of opinion about something, right? And I I used to think it was such a serious issue that he this was a reason for writing the letter. And now I think, well, with such a high standard set, as Paul has indicated in the earlier verses, right? <laughs> My, any failure would be visible. It would be, it would stand out, right? So if, if, if you uh, are aware at all of what the churches are like, having been in them for some time, right? You know about all of the uh, issues that exist there, right? 
Oh, my. There are issues on every side that are dividing the brethren up, right? There's no unanimity of mind or spirit uh, in in many places or, or for long, right? Um, to have the kind of unity he's talking about here would be most, most wonderful. And it looks like there are those there in that church that, that are uh, of one mind with Paul. It says, I entreat thee also, true yoke fellow. Okay, this one. Uh, right? Um, true yoke fellow. Hmm. Is that Timothy? Hmm. Um, he says, help those women which labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also. Okay. And with other my fellow laborers. There, there are those who are uh, taking Paul as their example and walking the path, running the race, which he's exhorting, right? But notice the way he ends it. He, he says, and he says uh, in verse 3, I entreat thee also. So he, he's, this I think applies to all of them, even Iodius and Syntyche. He says, whose names are in the book of life. Every believer's name is in the book of life. Now, there are no definite articles here like there is in the King James translation. Really, in a book, a living book, is basically what he's saying. Okay. Now, there are other places in the book of Revelation where is the book of the life <laughs> out of which <clears throat> uh, judgments will uh, will be referenced. Remember, there's the books, the books of works at the final judgment, the books of works, and there's the book of life. The book of the life. Very specific, okay? Here he's not calling it by exactly the same words. He's just saying, yeah, there's a book, all right, and God has that book, and it has a lot of names in it. <laughs> Be thankful yours is there. Ah, so this is wonderful, I think. Paul sees things as it will ultimately be, right? He's looking way forward into eternity, right? And these dear saints will be with him there, and there will be perfect unanimity there of thought, purpose, goals, and so forth, though that may not exist perfectly in the church now. Okay, now going on, the third point, Paul's final exhortation, its focus Rejoicing. Oh, how wonderful. Rejoicing. Um, verse 4, Philippians 4, 4. Lisa, please read this great verse for us. Okay. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. Thank you. Uh, again here there's a repetition. You may have skipped over it and never noticed it. It's not only that he repeats the word rejoice. The word rejoice all by itself implies a repetition, okay? Rejoice. It means joy again, to enjoy again. So really, fourfold joy, 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 joy is what Paul is saying here, right? And that's like saying, never stop rejoicing. It just should go on and on and on, right? Without any ceasing. Uh, we should never stop rejoicing in the Lord. Why? Because his riches are most glorious. And uh, whatever our circumstance is, uh, nevertheless, it is true, right? 
And he's going to build on that as as he goes on here in the next few verses. Okay, chapter uh, 4, verse 5 will be next. Here we see the final exhortation of Paul and its challenge. And he says what that challenge is. The Lord is near. Be gentle. Be gentle. The Lord is near. Okay, um, Roy, please read verse 5 for us. Rejoice in the Lord always. And I say rejoice. Now the next verse, please, Roy. Verse number five. Let your moderation be known unto all men. The Lord is at hand. Thank you, Roy. Okay, so uh, how many times have you read this and thought, eh, it's a little strange uh, after all. If the Lord's at hand, how can you be moderate in anything, right? You might think, now's the time for extremes. Well, he's not talking about that. Many have interpreted it that way. The Lord at hand really does mean near. The Lord is near. That would be another valid translation of it, right? But he's not talking about prophecy when the Lord is going to return. Uh, At least I don't think so. If he is, he's just simply saying, our expectation should always be that the Lord, this is the moment the Lord could call us to be with himself. But I think rather he's talking about something else. I think he's talking about near in the sense of uh, um, his presence with us. In fact, the Lord is intimately present with us. Uh, it's easy to think of, of the Lord as being out there somewhere, and we're over here, right? As if somehow the connection isn't very close. That's totally false, right? How close is the connection? Well, we are the temple within which he dwells, right? Okay, Romans chapter 8, verse 9. Don't forget that. Romans 8, 9. But you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if so be that the spirit of God dwell in you. Now, if any man have not the spirit of Christ, he is none of his. If any man have not the spirit of Christ, he is none of his. How close is the Lord? How near is he? That tells you everything you need to know, right? You'll never forget it. But if so, then rest is a reasonable response. Moderation is what should characterize our lives or or one could also say uh, gentleness, a gentle spirit, okay? In other words, don't be all caught up in, as he's going to say next, anxious. That's not appropriate, okay? Whatever our circumstances. That's the next part of the exhortation here. He says there's a promise, and that's that the peace of God is abundant. So, Patty, can you read uh, Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7? Be careful for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Amen. I'm listening for amens. Where are they? Amen. Okay. (laughs) 
Okay. Be careful for nothing. Um, hmm. That's a rather strong way of saying, I know you're anxious. Stop being anxious. Okay. In other words, there's no reason for it. Stop being anxious, concerned about things that you have no power over. Our concerns are no match for God's abundant good care of each of us, which continues to be worked out by him. It's called the abundance of grace, okay, in other places. We're on a path to glory. The Lord will take us to that destination. And so uh, this uh, is the situation we're in right now. And therefore, he says, uh, we have something to something specific, he says, to exhort you with considering that. Okay, he says, and this is quite amazing and wonderful, has to do with our prayer life. And you know from other scriptures, like in Romans chapter 8, right, that our prayer life um, can easily go astray. In fact, in Romans 8.26, Paul even says we don't even know how to pray. So <laughs> the glorious prayers that get written out and then read and on occasions are usually way off track. Uh, how can you write it all out in advance and then read it and Anyway, let, I won't talk more about that. But anyway, <clears throat> prayer is supposed to be from the heart because that's where the Lord works, right? According to Romans chapter <clears throat> 8. Um, okay. <clears throat> but what does he say here about prayer? He says, be careful for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known unto God and the peace of God, which passes all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Okay? How about that? Hmm. <clears throat> Now's the time to, to stop in your tracks and assume that you don't know what he's talking about at all just to see what he actually has written because uh, there's something uh, truly great here and a blessing indeed. Uh, in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Okay. In every circumstance of life, by prayer and thanksgiving and, and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known. Okay. So uh, prayer is supposed to be a major feature of our lives, right? Throughout the day. But what about it? What does he say about it here? He says, in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, as if somehow the thanksgiving would be added on afterwards. But actually, it's supposed to be there first. Because the word with, the Greek word, means after. Okay? <laughs> yes, with thanksgiving. Thanksgiving should be part of every prayer. But the order is otherwise. Okay, after thanksgiving, in other words, then in everything by prayer and supplication. So our whole prayer life is supposed to be characterized by the thanksgiving. Okay? And that's very consistent with Paul's written in other places, in Thessalonians, in uh, other places as well, uh, Ephesians, you know. Uh, our, our thanksgiving is supposed to dominate our prayers. 
not our requests. The requests come later after you have been thanking the Lord. Okay. Now, if that's true, imagine how the requests will be modified compared to what they would have been otherwise. <laughs> there are things you're thanking the Lord for. Now you're asking the Lord to change those things. Well, be careful, right, about this. Be, be very careful about that. That's something to be careful about. <laughs> it says don't be careful, don't be anxious. But when we pray, we need to be thinking. Our mind has to be working. We have truth in our mind. Are we going to pray according to that or not, right? So he says, after Thanksgiving. So let the Thanksgivings then influence your requests. That will change everything, right? But he says, if you do, then what? And here's a promise of God in the rest of this verse. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. This is a promise based upon fulfilling that requirement, okay? Think about that. <laughs> this is uh, just truly amazing. <clears throat> he says, okay, so now we're thankful. We're thankful for all things, and we're thankful how God's working in our lives, and then we've made some requests in the light of that, right? We're just trusting God now for what he will work, right? So he says, the peace of God will keep, it'll guard your hearts and minds in through Christ Jesus. Okay? So the keep, I keep saying this, you've heard me say this many times, that the keep in the castle is where the crown jewels and the gold of the realm are kept, right? Because it's the, it's the most well-fortified, well-protected well place in the castle, right? Um, well, if, if God is promising to protect our hearts and minds that way, it means from attack, right? From worry, for concern, from concern for all of the affairs of this life that'll uh, come in upon us and turn us upside down, right? And it's all based, he says, this piece of God that'll be provided to you is all uh, a consequence of you having been in your prayer life properly relating to God and his sovereign and good care for you. After all, he works all things. He's working, present tense, all things together for your good. Okay, isn't that wonderful? I think that's so totally transforming. You need to truly take it to heart, and I do too, every moment of every day. Well, he finally gets to the last part here of his final exhortation where he says what his calling is. His call, Paul's calling of the believer <clears throat> is follow or imitate me. Okay, I'm going to ask Lisa, I'll go back to you. Hopefully you have Philippians 4 in front of you. If you could read for us verses 8 and 9. Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, Whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue and if there be any praise, think on these things. Those things which ye have both learned and received and heard 
and seen in me, do, and the God of peace shall be with you. Oh, amen, amen. Thank you, Lisa. Well, many have memorized verse 8 out of context, probably, because if you put it in context, now it has some real meaning, okay? Uh, this is not just a state of virtues, ethics, and all that kind of stuff. And believers are supposed to be ethical in all circumstances of life. That's actually not what it's saying. Many unbelievers are quite virtuous and uh, ethical in uh, various aspects of li- their lives, aren't they? Now, this is way above that. It's way beyond that. Okay. <laughs> Paul says now he's summarizing, right? Uh, what is he summarizing? Well, verse 9 tells us, this is amazing, really, when you see the connection here between verse 8 and verse 9. Okay. Think on these things. He's just made this long list, right? By the way, if you go through Paul's letters, you'll see that every one of these things are exemplified in his life. Okay? Every one of them. I challenge you to Take note of that, okay? Because now he says, think on these things. And then he says about these things, because he's not going to tell you more. He says, these things which you have both learned and received and heard and seen in me do. Again, mimic Paul. If we take our eyes off of Paul, we'll be taking our eyes off of Christ. What, it, what Paul is saying is that this is how God is working today under grace, and I'm giving you the example of it. I am imperfect in every way, and yet the Lord's blessing rests upon me, and his work is accomplished through me. You can also know this power and his grace, right? I'm the demonstration of that to you, right? So walk in the same path, follow in the same way, right, as I am walking. Notice how he repeats it several times there. The things which you both learned and received and heard and seen in me do. That word do means practice. He's not talking about obedience to the Ten Commandments. He's talking about something so far beyond that that the legalists don't have any concept of what Paul is writing about. In fact, he mentions the legalists before, and he says, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, who mind earthly things, right? Religion is in the realm of the flesh. The realm we're living in is heavenly, okay? And notice this final thing, though, and we... He mentioned the peace of God in verse number 7, didn't he? But now what does he say? That would be great indeed, having the peace of God protecting our hearts and minds, right? But now, he says, to add on top of that, he says, those things which you both learned and received and heard and seen in me do, and the God of peace shall be with you. Oh, my. In one of our Bible studies early in the morning, we were reading about uh, how God 
through individual persons who were very weak according to the flesh, namely Moses, Aaron, and so forth. He And through many miracles, God led his people out of bondage in Egypt, right? And the host of the Lord was at work doing this, right? In other words, God was with them, right? <clears throat> Here he says, follow me. Imitate me, and the God of peace will be with you. There's a difference between the peace of God and the God of peace. Take note of that, okay? What a privilege to have God, the God of peace, with us as we walk this path of life. What a privilege. Uh, well, I don't have anything more to say. I think I've said it. I think we've gotten to the point where we need to just say amen. Amen. All. If you have any questions, comments, please proceed. Amen. That was a great teaching, Jim. I, I'm learning so much, and uh, I really enjoy how you explained uh, Philippians 3, 17 through 19, because in the past, I used to think that that destruction meant that those people were unsaved. I, I think that I've asked you this in in um, in the past, but I can clearly see how these people are saved people, but they will be destroyed and they'll be uh, they'll suffer loss, but not their salvation. Yeah, and back in chapter one, he refers to those who are preaching the gospel, but who are, who are doing it for the wrong motive, right? Mm -hmm. uh, here, he's talking about practice. Hmm. Okay, I, I think these people were uh, also preaching the gospel. But the problem is everything in their lives were, were de demonstrating uh, the failure to apply the teaching to their lives. So they end up being the enemies of the cross. Yeah. And the cross, when Paul refers to the word cross, it, it becomes a, a sort of a special term. If you read in his letters, he, he, when he mentions the cross, rarely, in fact, maybe never, I can't be so sure right now, not having looked at it recently, but he's normally not talking about that piece of wood. Mm -hmm. uh, he's, and he's talking about not even the actual event of Christ dying for a sense. He's really talking about the whole thing that was accomplished through that. Okay. Mm. And, uh, what was accomplished through the cross, in other words, and is being accomplished today through the cross in our lives is most glorious. And that's the working out of God in grace. Okay. Amen. And that's Paul says we're delivered unto death for Jesus sake that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest. And he talks about being uh, enemies of the cross there in Philippians and in Galatians at the end. He talks about, um, this amazing thing. He says, the world is crucified unto me and, and me unto the world, right? Uh, <clears throat> the cross of Christ is most wonderful. It is all that's been accomplished and is now provided uh, through his finished work. Mm. Yeah, yeah. What, a blessing. what a blessing indeed. Any other, any other comments? And it's the it's the message of the cross. Is that correct, Jim? Because yeah, Peter, yeah. because Peter Peter did not preach the message of the cross. He oh. preached grace and he preached the blood of, of Christ. 
Yes. But he didn't preach the cross or the message of the cross. Is that true? No, that's absolutely true. That's another uh, kind of uh, description he uses, the message of the cross. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, Peter actually preached that, uh, I think later in his life when he writes his letters, Paul has already had a great influence on him. Okay. Mm-hmm. But earlier in Acts chapter 2, he preaches the cross as this horrible thing that you did, right? <laughs> He's, right. He says, you crucified the Lord, right? Right? Mm-hmm. He doesn't preach. He does preach the resurrection, but he doesn't preach the fullness of blessing through the cross. Uh, in fact, the, the gospel he preaches is one that says, Christ is going to return and judge you if you do not receive uh, this message, right? Right. Uh, it's it's not the same at all as to what Paul preaches. Paul preached the message of the cross, which has to do with uh, how God is pouring out his grace as a result of the finished work of our Lord Jesus Christ, once and for all, mm-hmm. and his glorious resurrection. That's okay. great. What a wonderful uh, privilege we have to to walk in the light of the glory of his grace, right? Right. Amen. Any other comments or questions? Father God, thank you now for uh, those that you've drawn into our midst today or who may listen to this later. Uh, these words concerning uh, the great exhortation of the Apostle Paul. And Father, may these words of Paul continue to be a blessing to us. And we would thank you, Father, in, in every way for that. And uh, Now and always look to see how you will work under grace in our lives. May you be honored and glorified. In Christ's name, amen.